Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. This is the unceremoniously early season finale of Jay's Talk Plus. The Toronto Blue Jays lose two to nothing to the Minnesota Twins in game two. The Toronto Blue Jays lose two to nothing to the Minnesota Twins in the American League wildcard series. The Toronto Blue Jays score one run over 18 innings with more than 20 base runners off a team that won fewer games than them in a weaker division. Yes, a team that retooled on the fly, had a dramatically improved bullpen in the second half, added a couple of historically good rookies to the offensive side of things, got a few key pieces back from injury right at the finish line. This is not to knock the Minnesota Twins, who have some real good vibes going on in that clubhouse from talking to people around that team, looking at a very good one-two in Pablo Lopez and a Sonny Gray who didn't have his best stuff yesterday, but still managed to give them some quality innings and keep the Blue Jays with a zero on the board. Now, the Blue Jays help the Minnesota Twins out a lot. So what follows is not a shot at the Minnesota Twins or saying they don't deserve to be in the DS or they didn't win it. But the Toronto Blue Jays did a lot to get in their own way as they have done all season. This wildcard series played out in a way that I think is a pretty good avatar and a pretty fitting snapshot of the season that was. For four months of the year, this season was defined by missed opportunities. At one point near the end of July, the Toronto Blue Jays were on pace to have maybe the worst performance ever by a playoff team when they have runners in scoring position. Now that came around that normalized a little bit. They were actually quite good in that regard in August and September, but the season was still defined for a long part by missed opportunities with runners in scoring position with earlier chances down the stretch to clinch and put yourself in a position where you could have better optimized for the wildcard series or, or lined up your rotation differently, tried some different thing. You, you had more control. You could have, you know, had the season gone dramatically different, especially in the early stages, maybe you can push for a division title because, hey, in April we thought it was done and the Rays were running away with it. Guess who else just scored only one run over 18 innings is out of the playoffs now too. The Tampa, Ray, Tampa Bay Rays, it turns out, were human as well and the Baltimore Orioles caught up to them. The Toronto Blue Jays could have been in the mix for that as well. That was the expectation heading into this year was to not let 162 games of work come down to a randomness welcoming best two out of three series. Now, it's not really randomness that did the Blue Jays in here. Again, this is something that plagued them all season long. They finished this year 14th in offense. That's not among playoff or that's not a, that's not a mark where you feel better about it when the playoff field shrinks and there's better pitchers on the other side and you're facing better offenses. They were among the worst run scoring teams that made the playoffs and even if we believe, hey, Process over results. Over a thousand games, the Toronto Blue Jays would score more runs because of their expected stats and, you know, the ballpark factors normalized and things like that. They did not at any point this year have it all click on offense. I felt like a broken record at times on this show about the reasons the Blue Jays couldn't hit. They finished 16th in the league in home runs. We know home runs take on an even greater importance in the postseason, and they were just not equipped to play postseason baseball offensively. It was a question we asked a bunch in the lead into this series because last offseason and heading into this year, that's all we heard about was the Blue Jays, you know, they were good, but they had to trade out some run scoring for run prevention. The defense was dramatically better. They were the best defensive outfield in baseball, one of the best defenses overall. You know what didn't come around? That was a huge part, talking part in February as well. Uh, the attention to detail and doing the little things right. So yesterday, in addition to not having a lot of hitting execution, 
in big spots, you know, Matt Chapman missing a bases loaded, what, what could have been a run, uh, bases clearing double by a couple of inches and then grinding into a double play after that. That's one thing. The Blue Jays didn't get the hits in those spots. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. also got picked off on second base with runners on second, third, second and third, and the team's best hitter in Bo Bichette up at the plate with a full count. Now I understand it's a tough situation. That crowd was very loud. You couldn't hear the base coach all game, apparently. You know what you should probably do if you can't hear the base coach all game and there's a runner ahead of you on third and that extra foot of leadoff you're taking is not very valuable at all because you're blocked on the base pass and you you need to have a, a real inning here. Um, also, if you're a team that has spent the entire season getting thrown out on the bases more than any but the most aggressive teams in baseball, maybe you just don't risk it with a, a heavy lead and you can't get back to your base. Two days in a row, the Toronto Blue Jays have one of their star players out on the bases. Now, the Bobachette one, Carlos Correa made a tremendous play. We talked about that a lot yesterday. You can get there. You can understand it even if you disagree with it. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. getting picked off on second base on what was another good Carlos Correa play. Um, by the way, Sonny Gray explained after the game that, um, you know, he had kind of, Carlos Correa had come to him earlier and been like, hey, over at second base, we can't hear the calls from the base coaches. You, you should be aware of this if we have a runner on second base. Let's put the pick play on. Correa signals to the dugout. The dugout signals to the catcher. The catcher calls the pitch com for the pickoff play. Well executed, just like the Bobachette play the day prior. The Minnesota Twins, you tip your cap. But there's no scenario in which, after a season of making those mistakes, you should be taking a low upside gamble like that and just kind of getting caught napping on the bases. And again, it's indicative of the season that was. It's indicative of the missed opportunities they face this year. We're going to have a, a show where we talk a lot about the season that was, and we, we're going to talk a lot about the Jose Barrios decision as well, because while the Blue Jays only scored one run over the series, and look, I know, I saw responses yesterday when we talked about Kevin Gosman's game. Well, they only scored one run. That's true, but this is a front office and a coaching staff that is making the same decisions on with the offense that they are with the pitching staff, and it's still an important piece of, of that game. Um, yeah, they would have had to eventually score a run to win the game. They could not have won that game zero to negative one. But the Jose Barrios pull decision was baffling to me. And I know that I can get framed sometimes as an analytics guy, and we'll talk about the numbers on this show. You don't show up for your first day of analytics camp, and they give you a handbook that says in every situation, do this, this, and this specifically. Just like it is a caveman mentality to say there is no value whatsoever in extra information and you should only rule by your gut and analytics have no place, et cetera. It is just as bad to be like, well, this is what the numbers say and this is how we're doing it regardless of context. Jose Barrios went out there. First of all, Jose Barrios is on a seven-year, $131 million contract. If you don't believe he can go through an order a second time in a must-win playoff game, Maybe you need to rethink how you're spending your $130 million. Uh, Jose Brios could have gone through the order an extra time. And this is where, you know, we're going to talk to some people today. We're going to talk to John Axford, who's been a pitcher in these situations. We're going to talk to Matt Bushman, who's been a member of this coaching staff in these exact situations in the past, like in 2020 with the Matt Shoemaker, uh, Robbie Ray decision. We're going to talk to those people about what exactly goes into this, this, these decisions. From afar, as someone who welcomes analytics and decision-making, this was too much. And I tweeted about it before any of the bad things happened. You know, you got to call the shot when the shot goes up, not when it goes in. 
Jose Brios was dealing. He is your guy. You have invested heavily in him monetarily, heavy in him term-wise, heavy in him by giving him the ball in game two. He is dealing. He is locating well. The velocity is good. The pitches are breaking well. He's generating poor swings from the hitters that if you're a catcher, you're Joe Siddle watching on Blue Jays Central, that's information. Analytics is supposed to be just information, and that is real, live, and high-fidelity data that you're getting in the course of the game. Hey, this guy wasn't close on this. Hey, Jose Brios' pitch is, pitch is moving like this. He's generating poor swings. He's locating extremely well. This is this can be framed as a gut thing or a traditionalist thing. Hey, you paid this guy a bunch of money. He's your guy. Let him go. I'm okay with that approach. Even if you're an analytics person, though, you should be looking at that and being like, well, all the information we had live in the game is that Jose Brios was dealing and the Minnesota Twins were having trouble with him. And yes, he walked Royce Lewis. But what did we talk about the day prior? Royce Lewis is the best hitter in this lineup. And if you're going to nibble with someone, you nibble with Royce Lewis and make other players beat you. The decision to go to Yusei Kikuchi, who hadn't pitched out of the bullpen in a year. Yeah, we knew you could maybe go to him at some point in this game. But to do it in the fourth inning, to do it without a clean inning to come into, to do it basically with the byproduct of, well, you turn Alex Kirilov into Donovan Solano for the rest of the game. It's not enough upside there. And Yusei Kikuchi, you know, he induced a, a weak ground ball with Royce Lewis on first base. That probably could have been a double play if it, you know, just doesn't have the eyes it has. Whatever. It didn't happen that way. The walk that happened from there, the single that happened from there, the inning did not go well. It didn't go in disaster fashion, but it was still enough to win the game for the Twins. And more at a more high level, I think that this kind of decision gets to something we've talked a lot about on this show, and we've talked about it back to the deadline. We've talked about it in some of the, you know, hitting discussions we've had where Bobachet says while he's injured, he thinks that one of the issues with the Blue Jays executing in big spots is that they, you know, they either don't stick to a plan or they don't have enough of a plan or or whatever the framing of it was. The Jays get framed as uh, you know, an analytic front office, which is true. They they invest in that stuff, but that's league-wide. At this point, like 27, 28 teams invest in that stuff. The advantage is not, is no longer in having the numbers and being ahead of the curve technologically and sports science-wise. The advantage comes in how you integrate that information into decisions, how you communicate that information to foster buy-in from players and help them improve individually. There is, and it's felt like this at a, at a couple times, a communication and connectivity issue in this organization where, you know, John Schneider answers questions after that game yesterday and he got asked, well, was there, what would Jose Barrios have had to do to not get, to, to be able to stay in the game there? And it's a hard question for them to answer. And, and it's just, look, I, I don't want to turn in the analytics card or, or even, it really shouldn't even be an analytics debate because this is a baseball debate fundamentally. And the analytics do not dictate a lot of what the Blue Jays have done. If you are looking at it in a, you know, a raw binary, do this or this, there is a, communication issue and a connectivity issue. And I, I think that that is probably something the leadership group of, of this team needs to look at more seriously and in more detail this off season. You have 
very good departments that you've invested a lot in and the connectivity between those groups and the way that that trickles down to the on-field product and the on-field strategy and the on-field execution was lacking this year. It was lacking offensively for most of the year. It worked very, very well on the pitching side for the bulk of this year. But to go back to the topic of missed opportunities, the Blue Jays may have just squandered the best pitching staff they've ever had. Certainly a top three pitching staff in Blue Jays history when you look at rotation and bullpen and arguably number one. And that is not... What happened yesterday is not the fault of analytics, but it is a failure of the Toronto Blue Jays organization and the, you know, the at a front office level. Sure. At a coaching level. Sure. And also there are a bunch of guys who make this team, the, the number five or number six payroll in all of baseball who came up with one run on over 20 base runners over the course of 18 innings. Um, there is a lot to dissect here. There's a lot to be frustrated about. I understand the frustration from people. I understand if over the course of the two hours here today, we don't hit every single point of frustration. There is a long off season ahead, even though today is the finale of Jay's talk plus. But anyway, I, just wanted to say some things off the top there about how I felt about all this. And the answer is not good. And there are some things here uh, philosophically and certainly communication wise and connectivity wise between departments that I think has to change. We'll see how Caitlin McGrath of the athletic fields. She joins us now. She was down at target field. She was in that locker room after the game. Uh, Caitlin, how are you doing? Have the bad vibes uh, stuck to you like the champagne from the wild card celebration the other day? No, I'm I'm personally all about good vibes today because I think I'm going to go to the Mall of America. Um, Whoa. I know. Uh, I've, I'm flying out later today, so I have kind of a day to kill. I've been to Minneapolis three times now. This is my third time here. And I love malls. Um, anybody who knows me knows I love malls. And I have not been to the Mall of America yet, which feels like a crime. So that is the plan today. I am going to, I don't know, recover from the season by shopping, which is what I do best. And so good vibes for me. I'm fine. Hey, look, there's something to be said for knowing what you do best and executing that <laughs> in a high leverage playoff spot, Caitlin. It's something the Toronto Blue Jays did not do uh, particularly well yesterday. Let's start with the Jose Brios decision because that's what I was talking about when he came on with us here. Um, look, again, they only scored one run over two games. We can all acknowledge that and still take a look at certain pitching decisions. Um what did you make? I, I guess the the foremost quote from your post game piece at the Athletic that I'm curious to hear your take on is: You guys asked John Schneider, well, what would Jose Brios, who went three shutout innings and was locating well and was generating bad swing and miss, what would he have had to do to stay in that game? And it didn't seem like there was an answer. Did you get the impression that there is, you know, a rigidity to this decision and game plan that Jose Brios really couldn't have done anything about? I think so. It was a very jumbled answer, to be honest. And I actually think John Schneider is usually a pretty clear, like, communicator when he's explaining things that he um, made a decision on. And the way that he was answering that question and several questions about the Brio's decision, it was much more, like, jumbly, um, like, almost like corporate speak than he usually gives. Um, just kind of talking about, like, information and collaborating and you know making decisions to win and I, I don't know but like you know what but when he was answering questions about like Vlad's base running blunder or like what happened to the offense it was very clear cut you know that can't happen we failed at doing the little things right the offense didn't do enough we needed Chapman's ball to be a little bit more um to the right like those were very clear answers and then like the Barrios question it was like I was reading the transcript that we were getting and I was like I don't even understand quite what he's saying here other than just kind of 
saying words that about like information and planning and blah blah blah. So that to me was a bit of a tip off that it's like I, I agree with what you were saying. Like I think there is some sort of um, breakdown here in um, you know using the information, communicating the information, um, and sort of balancing that maybe with what is actually happening and maybe you know i'm a big person where it's like you can go in and then as a writer you have to be like this and you know this like too it's like you know you can have a plan um and you could want to execute on that plan but if something like happens or something is telling you don't do that then throw it away and scrap it right there's a lot of times where i go down to the ballpark and i say i want to write about this and then something else happens in the game and you're seeing something different in the game and you're like oh no this is this is what i got to focus on and so I, i don't know like i think that I, I was listening to your rant off the top and I agree with everything that you were saying um, about the Brio's decision. And I just look at it as being, you know, really unfortunate and unfair. I mean, let's think about it. The Blue Jays went into this postseason with basically the best pitching staff remaining. What was their like one like trump card in this whole entire postseason? It was their pitching. And yes, understandably, like Gosman, you wanted a little bit more from him in the first game. But at the same time, you got a really good performance from the bullpen. They kept you right there. And I think in game two, the Blue Jays just got in their own way when it came to the pitching, right? Like, I think you could see the Brios was really dealing. I didn't think the walk um, to start the fourth inning was egregious by any means. I didn't look at that walk and think, oh, he's lost his stuff. Like, I thought it was a competitive walk you know what it I was mean? the and guy like, who hit two home runs off of you yesterday you were being careful around him because the hitters behind him aren't that good exactly exactly so like I didn't think that that was like it wasn't like you know uh again like it wasn't a walk where you looked at it and you were like oh he's lost his stuff like what is going on here I wasn't like they got to get Kikuchi in this game right now like it, it was not and I think it was unfair to Kikuchi I mean here's what I'm thinking I'm thinking you've taken a season with Kikuchi where you've completely restored his confidence. You've um, taken a year where he was almost at his career worst and you put him at his career best. And what is the final moment that you've given him in that season? Well, you've given him, you put him in an uncomfortable position coming in in relief with a guy on in, you know, a game that is no score, but he knows the offense isn't going to score much probably. So he's got to keep it real tight and you've just put him in a situation where, yeah, his, his season ends on like kind of a disappointing note. And I'm not putting this on Kikuchi whatsoever. He gave up two runs. And like you indicated, it wasn't like he gave up two bombs or anything like that. I mean, there was a single that got through. It was a, a ball that Kevin, it was hit hard. Kevin kind of bobbled it. Maybe they could have got that one if that hadn't happened. But like, yeah, it wasn't an outing where it was a disaster by any means. But I just think like you've, Look, you've taken Barrios and you've given him a disappointing end when it could have actually been like a great playoff moment for him. Yeah, maybe they don't win the game, but maybe he still like, you know, pitches six scoreless or seven scoreless or whatever. And then maybe something else happens. I don't know. But like, I don't know. I just, I feel like this season, it was really frustrating for the offense, but I think the pitching was such a great story. And I just, I think it's unfortunate that the Blue Jays, like, ended their season with the pitching almost not being a great story because they got in their own way about it. Yeah, and and that's well said. And, you know, numbers-wise overall, they, they allowed five runs over a two-game wildcard series. That's, uh, you know, only 16 innings of pitching, not 18 because Minnesota was ahead both. But that's not bad. That that keeps you in good shape. You should be in the mix to win those. So um, I think that's well said on the Brio side. 
we'll talk about it more throughout the show, but let's pivot to that pitching side or the hitting side rather, because look, there is a, this is a story we've talked about all year, Caitlin. We did the runners and scoring position thing for a long time. We've done the home run thing. We've done the Vlad just never found that level of being Vlad. And you mentioned John Schneider was a little more direct about those things last night for this team to put up one run over two games with over 20 base runners. I mean, what do you what do you even do with that if you're John Schneider um, or, or if you're this team in general? Like they they did the thing they did the thing in terms of putting guys on base, getting traffic, and then they weren't able to come through with the big hit that goes over the wall and puts a number on the board in the hurry. They weren't able to come up with the small hit other than Kevin Kiermaier, uh, who tried to do it twice in game one. Um, what do we do with the fact that an offense that was average at best all year long looked this bad in this big a spot against, yes, a, a pretty good pitching team, but a pitching team that, you know, wasn't, they weren't even supposed to have the edge on, on Toronto. And if it was, it was a slight one. Yeah. Um, a lot to unpack there. I mean, like it, it was a familiar sight for me to see, just seeing like, yeah, they're getting guys on they out hit the Minnesota twins in both games and overall their series. But of course they weren't getting the big hits. And that's been a story all year. Obviously um, at this time of year, home runs are really, really big. Like, look at even, like, the Texas series, Texas and Rays series. I mean, Texas was the one that was hitting the ball out of the park. And, I mean, the Rays weren't really hitting uh, or scoring any runs, just like the Jays. But um, that is what you needed at this time of year. And, you know, I think the thing with the Blue Jays, again, it was kind of inconsistent messaging. It was like, okay, well, what is this offense? Is it, like, uh, is it an offense that just has to – string hits together and, and everybody kind of said, yeah, that's who we are. And we're a pitching and defense team and we'll take what the other team is giving us. Um, but at the same time, then I heard comments after game one and two, where it's like, well, it's really hard to string hits together in the postseason. <laughs> you kind of, like, you know, and it's like, well, that was your plan. Like that, what, there, you had no other plan because your, your team hasn't hit home runs. Um, and hardly have done even extra base hits. There was only one extra base hit in this series for the Blue Jays. I think that was a leadoff double um, from Vlad in mm-hmm. game one, which, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, they didn't cash him in on that. Like, so, Shocker. <laughs> yeah. At least he so, didn't get thrown out of second base on that one, though. <laughs> no, he didn't. He just stood there the entire time. Um, so, you know, that to me is another thing where – I don't know if it was like, you know, they didn't know their identity. They were going back and forth about their identity. They were trying to sort of keep an optimistic approach. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we will string hits together, blah, blah, blah. And then it comes along and they're not able to do that. But like, that was another thing that stood out to me. And I think that that is what you need to go into the off season and think like what, I mean, I think they need to be a power team. Like there's no reason they shouldn't be. That's the other thing. I think, um, you know, Keegan, who I know is on your show a lot too, and he's made this point a number of times, is like even the fact that we're talking about the Jays being like a team that has to say it or scrap things together and move guys along, it's like that shouldn't be how they're doing things. That's not actually how they're constructed. Like we shouldn't be looking at a lineup with George Springer, Bo Bichette, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Matt Chapman, Brandon Bell, um, all these guys, Danny Jansen, Wayne Kelsey, Alejandro Kirk, all these different guys, and say, yeah, 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 this is a scrappy offense that's got to, like, string little hits together and, like, you know, take bunt bunt guys over and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, that that should be a lineup that hits a lot of home runs. Like, 
to me, I look at the names in that lineup and I look at the names in the Texas Rangers lineup and I think like the Blue Jays should be hitting a lot of home runs. Why are they not? And so I think that, you know, that is something that has to be examined this year or this offseason, I should say, because I, I think at some point the Blue Jays sort of just decided we're playing like this. So we're going to be this kind of like that. That's our identity. But like it shouldn't have been right. Like they should hit home runs. And that is a question of why that was not happening this year. Yeah, and you don't want guys selling out for home runs and, like, everyone to come back to spring training. It's like, well, we're only going to pull the ball in the air. But if that is, you know, there's an incongruency between the roster construction and the way they're saying they're going to play. If you're supposed to be a small ball string hits together team, well, maybe you shouldn't have three of the slowest players in baseball in your everyday lineup. And maybe you should have, you know, a single guy on the team who can steal bases and things like that. Um, at least the run prevention side of things worked out. They were they were. A much better defensive team that helped the pitching staff be as good as they were. But Caitlin, in addition to the improved defense, the other thing we heard all spring training about all off season about was this was going to be a team that did better paying attention to the little things and the little details, which is even more important. If like you said, you are going to pretend that you're a team that, that shouldn't hit home runs or, or is going to string hits together. And yesterday, you know, the season doesn't end in this moment. They, they got other opportunities, but a pretty big moment where Vladimir Guerrero Jr. gets picked off at second base, runners on second and third. Your best hitter in Bobachet is at the plate. There is not really value in hanging high off of second base because there's a runner in front of you and you're playing for a bigger inning at that point. Um, and, and yeah, look, the third base coach couldn't get the call over to Vlad because of the volume and target field. The Carlos Cray explained that. Sonny Gray explained that. We could acknowledge that, but man, did it not feel fitting for hey, Vlad of all people and just the Jays in general to have a big opportunity squandered by inattention to detail on the bases. Uh, John, You guys asked John Schneider about this after the game and he he had the date exactly ready. He was like, yeah, since February 14th when we first showed up to Dunedin, this is what we've been talking about. Um, what do you make of the fact that that part never came around? Like forget strategy or, or what the identity is supposed to be. They just never were able to hammer home the ability to run the bases intelligently and not make, you know, get in your unforced errors, basically, to, to use a tennis term. I hope you, you'd appreciate. Uh, I do appreciate. Um, you know, it's funny because I think that maybe there was a misalignment of what this team's identity should be, and maybe it just started from that. Um, and maybe that sort of we have to be perfect. And I'm not saying John Schneider was like saying we have to be perfect. Like I remember him acknowledging like all along the way, like errors are going to happen. Like it's baseball, right? Like it's a competitive, highly competitive sport. You're playing with the best baseball players in the world. And they're all human beings too. Like mistakes are going to happen. Like that kind of thing um, is just part of the sport. Like that's how teams win. Sometimes they capitalize on mistakes. Like that's fine. And I think for the blue Jays, like, there were some mistakes where you, you know, you don't hate. You could look back at maybe the bow play in game one, where I think you can, like, it didn't work out. And I think maybe in hindsight, you say, okay, don't try to steal or like, don't try to go home because obviously it didn't work out. And, you know, maybe you didn't have quite um, the jump that you thought you had, but I think you can also appreciate like, okay, well maybe the process was right. And he was only doing it because he thought he would be safe. And, Korea had to make a perfect play and all those things happen and it didn't work out. And so those are the types of maybe mistakes or base running errors where like, yes, at the end of the season, when we've seen a whole season of this, people are frustrated that Bo did that because maybe that took some momentum away again in a big moment for the Blue Jays. But at the same time, I think you can look at that one and say like, okay, like I can sort of see the process though. 
the Vlad one is just completely, um, you know, unacceptable in that sort of moment, just because, as you say, like, he's not going anywhere. He can't can't move up. Springer's standing at third. There's two out, both at the plate. It's a full count. Like, these are the moments where you're, like, you're just waiting, right? And, yes, he wants to get a good jump if the ball is hit so he can score. Like, you understand that part of it, but you still got to be aware of what's happening. And so that was just a bad mistake. But to go back to, like, your earlier question, like, you know, I wonder if, like, you know, I remember this Blue Jays team in, in 21, maybe, and even a little bit last year, and I, I thought they sort of thrived on a bit of chaos, and I'm not saying that mm. the message should have been, like, let's go play sloppy and see what happens. Like, that shouldn't be. But I just I wonder if, like, maybe there was sort of a misalignment between, like, what this Blue Jays team, like, thrives in and and what maybe John Schneider wanted. And I wonder, like, if playing to like we got to do the little things we got to be a scrappy team we got to be a perfect team to some extent was maybe um put some pressure on the guys i don't know i'm just speculating here but i, I do think like there was um I, I do think there was maybe sort of a middle ground where the blue jays can be a team that thrives on chaos a little bit more and maybe that's like a hard way to like, be an identity of your team but it just felt like almost from very early on the fact that they came in and John Schneider made that such a point. And then it felt like every single time something happened where they made a mistake, it was like, Oh, but they said they'd be a perfect team. They said this would ever happen. And it just felt like it was accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And that was just like the whole um, sort of theme around the team was like, well, they're not playing perfectly. And I don't know. I just, I wonder if that, whether it's consciously or subconsciously like got to them. And I, and I, I just wonder if like this Blue Jays team is one that like operates more, better when they're actually like loose and like embrace the chaos to some extent. Um, but that's just me speculating. Yeah. You sound like Keith Ledger's Joker a little bit right now, but that's okay. That's uh, that's what a, a third consecutive playoff sweep does. And I do think what you're saying, you know, there's, there's at least some truth to it and you can look at, you know, something like, well, they got all these outs on the bases, but they never got the benefit. They stole a well below league average amount of bases. They took the extra base on, on running plays way less often than an average team. Like they got only the, the cost of being careless and never the, the benefit of being aggressive. So maybe there's a new balance to find there. You mentioned the word pressure and the pressure on some of these guys. And Caitlin, I wonder, this is, you know, three sweeps in four years now and 2020, if you want to discount it, whatever. It was an expanded playoff format. It was a shortened season. These guys were all still very young and on the, to use a Pat Riley term, the innocent climb where there were no expectations or or anything like that. But last year there were expectations. They made the wild card and they got bounced really quickly. This year the expectations were even higher. They undershot those expectations and ended in the exact same spot they ended last year in. Um, just how much pressure is there heading into this offseason? And I think not only for... Yeah, Vlad and Bo individually and guys like that. But Vlad and Bo are also only two years from free agency. The The window that we anticipated for this young core is not closing, but the inexpensive parts of it for your stars are, are more or less up. Um, if it is Ross Atkins making the decisions this offseason, just how high is the pressure level to get this right now? Because, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what what it looks like if you go through a season like this again. Yeah, you know, there is a lot of pressure and I think that it's not an easy off season because I think for the Blue Jays, you came out of 21 and 22 and you had really good offenses, but you 
corrected to some extent um, and probably as a result of the entire 22 season, but certainly it felt like the end of the season was the, the pitching and the defense kind of breaking down in that Seattle series where you were like, you could see why they sort of corrected. Like we got to be better defensively and pitching wise. And did they overcorrect this year? I'm not sure that they overcorrected as much as they just really maybe didn't um, get the offensive performance that they thought. Like it's whatever their projections were. I know talking to some people in the organization, they constantly said like, you know, the Blue Jays were in the range of the projections that the front office put out in terms of like, you know, this is the top end of the wins that we expect from this group. And this is the low end of the wins that we expect from this group. They were still in that range, but of course they were really at the low end. So it's not like the Blue Jays, um, the Blue Jays, I guess, in all their calculations, imagined an 89 win team. um, But that was sort of the low end, like at the, you know, if things go wrong, maybe we're at this. Um, And so they just maybe did not project that, you know, you were not going to get the season that, you got last year out of Alejandro Kirk. Vladdy obviously did not get to his peak levels. George Springer, really up and down season. Matt Chapman, not getting the power you expected to get from him and really not getting much production as you expected. Um, Dalton Varsho didn't hit the same amount of home runs that you maybe thought. And so I think that there was a lot. I think there was some maybe miscalculation on how much this offense would produce. And so now what do you do this off season? Like you've, you've had a season where you kind of corrected for um, pitching and defense and you figured it out and you had the best pitching and defense in baseball, basically, or certainly in the American league. But now you're like, okay, well now do we got to add more offense? And obviously you have free agents too. Like Kiermaier's free agent, Matt Chapman's a free agent with Maryfield will probably be a free agent, Brandon Bell free agent potentially retiring. Um, so you've got Hunjin Ryu um, also free agent. So you've got like a lot of questions to answer. You've got to reconstruct a roster because you're a lot of guys are potentially leaving. And then you have to figure out like, well, how do you add offense in a free agent class that isn't very strong this year? And so it's going to take trades. And that to me says maybe this roster looks a lot different again next year because whatever was happening this year wasn't working. The pitching really was quite good and the other thing I want to add is like you kind of said it off the top where like it's really unfortunate that Blue Jays kind of wasted um, or squandered their opportunity with this great pitching staff and with defense like pitching and defense can win in the postseason but you do have to score a little like you, you need some home runs you need some big um, timely hits and the Blue Jays of course didn't get that let's just add that the Blue Jays also I feel like they squandered like a almost perfect health season and mm-hmm. the Blue Jays have been very lucky Last year in this year, this year they were very lucky. No major pitching injuries. Their starters made basically every start. You got Hunjin Ryu coming back from Tommy John looking like vintage Hunjin Ryu. Like, that was unexpected. You had, yes, some injuries from Bo, but otherwise you had a very healthy um, core lineup. And you wasted that too. And who's to say next year you're going to come in and, you you know, you could have a guy go down in spring training. And, and so that's another thing that, it just feels very unfortunate that the Blue Jays, again, like had a lot of things go their way this season, and yet like they still couldn't find a way to you know, go forward and capitalize on moments and come up big when it really mattered. 
And if there is something they're going to point to that went, you know, broke, unfortunately, unexpectedly against them, it's the Alec Manoa situation. And hey, they're they're in control of that one. That wasn't a UCL tearing or anything like that. That was, uh, you know, that's a, an organizational thing as much as an Alec Manoa thing. And, and Caitlin, you're right. All the, what you just lined out, laid out about the offense and, you know, how that affects the pitching staff. Well, that's how you end up in an elimination game and you pull your starter after three innings because you are managing for a one nothing game because you don't trust your offense to score uh, more than one run the rest of the way, which, hey, it ended up being accurate. Even if you don't like the execution of the strategy, they were right that they weren't going to score all game. So they had to uh, had to manage that tightly. Uh, Caitlin McGrath, enjoy the mall later. Enjoy your uh, your afternoon in Minneapolis. We'll catch up with you soon. Thank you for having me so much this season. It was great to join your show and talk to you. And as always, a pleasure. Thanks, Caitlin. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Make sure you head over to theathletic.com and check out her great piece from last night, which I think strikes the note a lot of fans were were looking for. Some not great, certainly not encouraging quotes uh, from players, from John Schneider and Caitlin contextualizing that very, very well, as she does. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, We'll, uh, we'll get the former pitcher side of what happened last night. John Axford, uh, you know, he's a Jays fan at this point, not a player anymore, but uh, I'm sure he had some takes on that poll and uh, just generally how the Blue Jays entered the postseason. Uh, we'll talk to Kylie McDaniel, Matt Bushman, and John Morosi in the second hour as well. Uh, but John Axford coming up next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Ah, it's a little full-blown meltdown for you. Let's uh, let's continue having one. The Toronto Blue Jays get swept by the Minnesota Twins. It's their second consecutive wildcard series sweep. It's the third in the last four seasons, if you are someone who counts 2020. Uh, not great, and some interesting decisions to pick apart from that one. Let's see what former Major League Baseball pitcher and absolute impeccable music taste haver John Axford thinks about it. John, good morning, man. How you doing, buddy? Good morning. I uh, appreciate the lead-in of my favorite pup song right there. Yeah, and the the most fitting one, either that or familiar patterns, was the was the perfect one for this <laughs> Jays team today. And uh, yeah. s- somehow familiar patterns seems darker than full blown meltdown. I I don't disagree. Um, so last night, you and I were texting a little bit during the game. Uh, the the Jose Brios decision, and again, we'll acknowledge that yes, you have to score more than zero runs to win a baseball yep. game. But you're a former pitcher. I would love to know what you thought of the decision to remove Jose Barrios uh, as back-to-back lefties were coming up in the order. He'd gone through three plus. He had just walked Royce Lewis, but he'd been dealing to that point. What did you make of that decision in real time? Oh man. Um, You know, I think it's been talked about enough and then touched on quite a bit. Um, Joe Siddle last night, uh, Madison last night, you know, on Blue Jay Central, both discussed it openly and I think they both did a great job uh, talking about it and just seeing that human element um, kind of disappear right there. Um, You know, you see a guy that is dealing that is in the environment that he's in doing everything that he's doing in that moment. um, You know, you got to kind of feel some of those things out. Obviously the analytics are being discussed. They're being talked about 
you need to talk about those things coming into an elimination game like that and see every option that you have. Um, but man, when, uh, when I was watching and I saw Kikuchi warming up, I was, uh, <laughs> I was a little confused. That's for, that's for certain. You know, I, I've been in, you know, elimination games myself and in the back end of the pen. I, if I can be anecdotal, like I remember even specifically in 2011, um, game six, NLCS, you know, I'm the closer for the team, but I remember specifically going to the manager and saying, Hey, if there is an opportunity where, you know, we need to ride the guys later in the game earlier, just because like, I'll be there in the first inning, like I'll be prepared. Um, you know, those moments happen and teams talk about that. Players talk about that. The players are always prepared no matter what in those games. But when you have a pitcher like Rios dealing the way he was, um, I think you heard it from quite a few Blue Jays last night. They were confused. And I think, uh, you know, myself and other fans and other people watching were also confused. Yeah, it's one of those things where like, yeah, the the old Mike Tyson quote of everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. That's usually when you go to your emergency stuff with going to another starter out of the pen or using John Axford in the fourth inning if you have to. It's not, the quote is not like, everyone has a plan until you get kissed on the mouth or, or whatever the equivalent right. is of where things are going really well. Um, so that's a tough one. I mean, you, in your experience, obviously you've done a lot of pitching. You've watched a lot of games from the dugout or from the bullpen. How much of, you know, we, we have the analytics coming in. You, you have what Barrios is telling you what you're seeing when you see the poor swings that the twins were making, and maybe they figure it out second time through the order with a guy of Jose Barrios's experience level and with not huge second time through the order splits. I, I don't really know, but how much should the fact that these guys really didn't have a chance on much against him, how much should that have informed things? Yeah, I think that's big too. I, and, you know, from a player's perspective, you feel that and you see that within the game, um, whether you're on the bench, whether you're in the bullpen or whether you're on the field, you know, um, all those guys can see that, especially the guys on the field, especially those guys up the middle. Um, you know, they're seeing what the pitches are doing. They're seeing them move. They're seeing the poor swing, the weak contact. Um, so I think from a player's perspective, you see that and you understand that and you kind of want to keep riding it. You want to ride that momentum really as long as you can um, and keep it going. Obviously when, you know, uh, something hinges there, there's a, you know, a slight lapse, a little, a little break, um, you know, maybe not quite a break, a, a little bit of a bend. Maybe you get a little more hesitant. Maybe you fall back towards those analytics a little bit, but there wasn't even any bending there. You know, I know there was a leadoff walk. I think that was a deserved um, leadoff walk. You know, a guy that just hit two home runs the day before, <laughs> um, but that's that's not bending. That's that's still just pitching to strength and making sure you're avoiding um, someone putting their team on the board like they did the day before. So, um, you know, I, I think you got to play both parts, obviously. But for me, a player's perspective, you see that happening and you're feeling good whether you're the one on the mound or not. And when that's kind of removed and that human element is taken away, it's it's kind of like a blow. You almost feel like the air is taken out. And I'm sure from the other side, Minnesota is feeling it differently. They're feeling a little, maybe, you know, a little more energized. So that that's a, there is a real human element to that. There is a, like you said, they, it could be deflating. We heard from Whit Merrifield after the game and he obviously didn't like the decision. He's been very outspoken about a lot of things o over the course of this season, but, but was very adamant that he thought that loss kind of 
that lost the thread a little bit with things. I, I also wonder, John, and look, the, the bullpen was pretty effective. Jimmy Garcia, Eric Swanson, and Jordan Romano gave you three shutout innings after that. But on the hitter side, is there maybe an effect of, you know, the, the explanation for the Brios move after the game more or less came down to, well, we thought we had to win a one nothing game because we can't score runs. Does that tighten up the guys who are still in that game and, and to come into that game later? I can only imagine. So like, I can't really speak from a hitting side. I won at bat in my big league career and I was told not to swing. So I struck out. Um, but you know, just from my own perspective of being on the mound, it's, I would imagine it similar to being given an opportunity or being given a shot when you're on the mound to, to shut down a team, close down a team, um, put yourself into a significant role coming out of the bullpen and then having that kind of just, you know, taken away from you, having, having it seem like um, the higher ups just don't trust the fact that you're going to be able to lock it down or do what's need, needed to be done to win this ball game. Um, and when that happens, it, it's deflating. So if, you know, from a hitter's perspective, that they're seeing this happen in front of them, perhaps that's what they're feeling as well. Like, Oh man, like now the pressure is on even more. Like we have to, prove this wrong we have to show that we can do something more and score runs and win this ball game to to help the cause of whatever this cause may be that this decision is happening um yeah like i i, I don't know i i've been in many situations you know where you're feeling like you are trusted um in a particular moment and that trust is kind of taken away and when that happens uh it's hard to wrap your head around mentally so I want to zoom out a little bit from this micro decision, John, and ask you, there's going to be a lot of talk and there was last night on Twitter and on, you know, Sportsnet Central, and there'll be tons of talk the rest of this week, I'm sure about, you know, generally broad term, quote unquote, uh, error quotes, uh, analytics and their role in things. And we can obviously, you know, I, I think we both agree that if that was what was dictating that decision yesterday, they maybe your formula needed to weight more heavily the stuff that we saw over those first three innings. Um, but more generally right. speaking, um, you know, when it comes to having that extra information that a front office is gathering and trying to filter down to a coaching staff and then filter down to a, a, a player. I mean, uh, to me, it's if there are issues with it, it's probably more on the communication side. How can teams bring that stuff to, to players, specifically a, a pitcher like yourself, in a way to you know foster that buy-in and understanding and, and empower the player rather than make it seem like it's being dictated down to them? Right. I, th I think that's kind of um, you know the, the the interesting spot right now. The, the very first time I really kind of heard of some. I guess numbers and analytics being brought to me, obviously you, you discuss things um, I did earlier in my career. You'd always go, go over hitters and, and what tendencies were, what your strengths are. And you would discuss pitching the strengths and um, you know, in, instead of to uh, you know, certain liabilities within the strike zone of the hitter or within their swing. So, but one of the first times I ever heard of certain numbers of actually percentages being thrown at me and, you know, maybe you should pitch this way because this is why we signed you and we kind of liked the way that we saw this was when I was with uh, Cleveland in 2014. And the front office of Cleveland in 2014 was Mark and Ross, like <laughs> they were there. So, like, they're not new to finding some of these numbers and, and figuring out what works. And they were right about me in 2014, and I couldn't quite see it at that time. Um, but 
but you know, I think just the presentation as you as you brought forth is kind of the difficult spot. You know, I think as players we can be a little bullheaded. You get information from certain people that you feel maybe don't understand what you're trying to do or what you're trying to accomplish or how you are as a pitcher, uh, how you are as a hitter. Um, that just maybe needs to be delivered in a in a in a better package or in a better way. And obviously, hitters have their um, their meetings, pitchers have their meetings. It's all delivered to you um, by uh, video and by your coaches. Um, but some of that delivery uh, maybe just gets lost in translation as well uh, along that way. So, you know, front offices are changing, coaching staffs are changing. There's more people being added. Um, perhaps there's just another, I don't know, another space where a liaison of sorts can, can kind of join in and be a part of that because you, you do need to bridge that gap of um, front office to player uh, in the easiest way possible that you can and, and to make it uh, make the most sense for the players. Uh, John, so in addition to being a former player, you're also a baseball fan. I know you go down to these games with mm-hmm. you. You have two sons that you'll go down with. There are a bunch of Axford jerseys out there that I imagine are either diehard fans or relations of yours when I see them uh, at the park. <laughs> um, look, at, around this time in 2021, there was disappointment, that, but there was real excitement that this Beau Vlad and, and whoever else core, um, they'd already started signing pieces and adding to that, and they, they seemed like they were on the cusp of doing something big, and this was going to be a really fun group for a long time. From the fan side of things, now that you're you know re- retired and watching the games from that perspective, um, how does this feel right now relative to where we were in 2021? Oh, man. I mean... In 2021, I still I still played a little bit, so I think I eliminated <laughs> myself a little bit <laughs> with my one game with the Brewers. Um, but you know, I, I think there's obviously learning curves um, throughout this game, and it, and it happens um, throughout a career. And if your career is fortunate enough to be long enough, uh, it's going to happen often. And the only time it doesn't is to you know uh, very steady players who um, can put it together year in, year out, day in, day out for a very long period of time and surrounding yourself and surrounding that team uh, and that person with a team and with people that are complimentary. I think that's, that's a big part as well. I, you know, we can uh, discuss many other teams that are not in this place. You know, we can talk about the Anaheim angels and, and the two big players that they have that, uh, you know, can't get to where the Jays are right now and have uh, for um, three of the last four years. Um, there's, there's just, you know, something, I I don't know what it is, but there's obviously, there's something that's just missing from that, um, from that team. And whether it's this year, the, the kind of the streakiness of the team, you know, middle of September, everyone thought they were the worst team ever and they weren't going to make the playoffs. And then all of a sudden next thing, you know, they, they go on a great run and they win a bunch of games and including in Tampa and people weren't expecting those things. Now all of a sudden they're great again. So, you know, sometimes you just need a little bit of a filler to kind of find that, find those holes, fill it in. Um, and it just depends on what complements the team. The Jays really tried this off season, uh, filling those spots and they did well doing it defensively pitching wise. Um, it's hard to know. It's hard to know if it's, um, you know, a clubhouse thing, if it's a uh, individual thing, if it's a coaching thing, a front office thing, who really knows, but obviously there's, there's going to be some change again and, and whatever those holes are, hopefully they're, they're filled in a way that helped the team. Uh, last one for you, John, I don't usually take listener questions with guests, but uh, four loony dogs or one hot dog from the Arbor in Porto, in Porto over. 
Uh, it's been a few years since I had an Arbor dog, but if I can throw down an Arbor dog with a golden glow out there, that's that's always great. But, I mean, I was also at the latest uh, dollar dog day, and, you know, those those dogs are great. They're, they're three bites and they're gone, but I just wish you could buy more than four at a time. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, the app a little speedier. Uh, John Axford, uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Thanks for the loony dogs a couple weeks ago. I'll, I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks, Mike. John Axford, uh, former Major League Baseball pitcher, uh, all-around good dude. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, that was, that was kind of the former player side. So we're going we're to take a couple more perspectives on where the Jays are at right now in the second hour here. We're going to talk to Kylie McDaniel and Matt Bushman after the break. Kylie McDaniel, who is now an ESPN analyst. He has worked in multiple front offices uh, in the past. We'll see what the front office side of this looks like. We'll talk to Matt Bushman, who's been on coaching staffs. We'll see what the coaching staff side of this looks like. And then we'll wrap it up. Uh, we'll wrap up the Jays Talk Plus season with John Morosi. Uh, all that next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, Jays relive a bad dream. Yesterday, uh, they get swept again. They score one run over 18 innings in two games against the Minnesota Twins. For the third time in four years, they're swept two games to nothing in the wild card series. Uh, not a great spot to be in. Now, most of your core pieces are still locked up for next year, but anytime you're coming off of back-to-back disappointments, this year's disappointment, uh, especially larger given that you uh, had higher expectations and higher aspirations for this year, it makes for a tough offseason as a front office. Uh, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, author of Future Future Value and the Power Alley Substack, joins us now. Kylie, how you doing, man? Doing good. Kind of curious how you guys are holding up. I mean, personally, whatever, it's the job. It's uh, at least they gave us uh, maddening micro decisions to complain about instead of leaving us with just like, ah, they weren't good enough generally, which I guess makes for an easier show to structure. But uh, yeah, I mean, before we get into some of the some of the big picture front office stuff, what did you make of the Brios decision last night from the Blue Jays to, to give him the hook there in the fourth inning as he was set to face the lefty part of the order a second time? So it's similar to what happened with uh, Blake Snell with the Rays a couple mm-hmm. years ago, where it's so different than what they do in the regular season that your knee jerk is like, well, why would you do something that different? Like, how is this game's sort of stakes and how it's going to play out that different than the regular season? And then there's also the player level, which I saw some of the quotes from the players last night, like, oh, we've never done that before. So it was kind of weird. And then you take another step up where you're like, all right, even if there is like some logic behind it, however, you know, fraud it might be, or some of the things around the numbers uh, may say like, ah, like human wise, maybe let him give up two hits and then pull him out. If that's what you think is going to happen or whatever it's going to be. And then it's like, well, you've banked nine figures on this guy. Like if he can't face some lefties twice, then that means he's just like a matchup guy or he's an opener or something when, you know, when the games are important. So I guess the games aren't important earlier in the year. Like it just raises more questions than it does answers. And you also put yourself in a spot where if Kikuchi doesn't do exactly what you want him to and just strike everybody out on breaking balls, then it's like, well, now it looks really dumb because you failed doing a thing nobody thought you should do. And so it's, as you can see, like, I, like I'm not even a Jays fan. And it's like twisting me into a pretzel trying to figure out what was going on there. 
Yeah, and and look, the the point you made was somewhere I was I was going to go with, with you anyway. Was like, yeah, you spent a uh, seven year contract and one hundred thirty one million dollars is the second largest contract in the history of the Blue Jays franchise. And you know, if he's a glorified opener in a must win game, do we maybe need to rethink how? assets are allocated. And I guess the tough part here, Kylie, is that the hardest part of baseball is making the playoffs over 162. It's such a grind that, you know, there is a real value for starting pitchers. But how do we navigate that? Because it's not uniquely a Jays problem. Obviously, the Phillies, you know, this week let their guys cook. But we saw quick hooks kind of all around baseball in, in the last couple of playoff runs. Um, what is that like from the front office side when, when we look ahead at how teams are going to allocate assets? Well, the I think the Rios contract was one of those things where, you know, I'm not speaking for the Jays, but I'm going to sort of try to get inside their head, which is the pitcher that can go six deep in the playoffs and throw 200 innings and have a three-and-a-half or three-year rate. That guy's like the most valuable guy in baseball because there's like nine of them. <laughs> uh, and so you pay that guy thinking he will be that guy, and then if he's not, then you kind of have to admit like, well, while he's going to get the ball every fifth day of the whole season and start a playoff game – we, we may have like overshot here a little bit for now. We think we can still get there. Like you can see how that's like a very difficult thing to talk about where it's like, Oh, it wasn't a great contract, but he's still an integral part of our team. We just paid him a little too much. Like they're never going to admit that even if that's true right now. So you've got to see what they're thinking is though. This guy's got the pieces to be that, you know, that Zach Wheeler or whatever we can depend on. I think it's more money than Zach Wheeler got a while back on that last contract. Um, but you know, it doesn't always work. Uh, and I was actually just talking to a GM uh, a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about, like, the, the concept of extensions, which obviously Brios is one of those. And he was like, you know, it's typically you're, you're kind of always getting value if the players who you think they are, but you're kind of betting on the person because if there's, like, a downturn in performance or there's uh, an injury or whatever, then it was really dumb. And the guy didn't even hit the market. You don't even know what his market value was. In a lot of cases, if you're signing extensions, you have to be setting a new precedent for, you know, two-plus pitchers or, you know, like, whatever his classification is, you're almost always setting a new record. So, like, it, it seems really easy to be like, oh, our two-plus player we give them, you know, a five-year deal and buy out one year for agency. It seems very easy. And that's what every fan wants you to do. But he's like, it's actually really risky. And people don't really understand that. And especially with Brios being like close to free agency, you're kind of paying that, that retail rate. You don't get that, that Corbin Carroll, like, oh, it's like 10 years, a hundred million. Like it's all fake money and he's really good. And who cares? Uh, with Brios, it's like a, you know, a little more complicated. You can compare him to free agents essentially. Yeah, and it's a tough one. Look, the Brios had a good season. I, I still think that contract, even acknowledging last year was a little up and down, it's mostly fine. Like, it, it's he, he was very good this year. Um, I, I guess it, it's a more of a, yeah, baseball philosophical of, of what exactly we do with the fact that the playoffs are are at least managed and, and so far this week have played out so much differently than the regular season. I, I guess, though, Kylie, the other thing that happened with the Blue Jays in this series was they only scored one run. Over two games, they were 14th in, in runs scored all season. They were 16th in home runs. Uh, that side of things, a little easier to address when it's just, hey, you need better offensive players? Yeah, and I know last time I was on, we talked about uh, Vlad Jr. having, I just looked it up, the second least lucky hitting line out of uh, players with 500 balls in play this year. So you would assume that that just sort of solves itself, that he'll be something close to the same player next year and he'll get you know better better numbers out of what he was and all that kind of thing. But uh, you also need to, I mean, we're probably having a similar conversation in Tampa where they have the excuse of not having a lot of money, um, but they like almost didn't score a run in the entire playoffs after having a didn't score a run in playoff game streak coming into the playoffs. And it's like, well, they can say we didn't have enough money, but it was also like you were one of the best teams in baseball for a while. You were the best team in baseball. And then you just kind of, you know, laid, 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 um, laid a goose egg for two days. And now it's like, you're done. 
and they had some injuries and things like that. Like everybody has sort of an excuse with the Jays. It's a little bit different. There's a little more money. There's a little more investment. And so you feel like you should be able to compete with at least Baltimore, who has a much smaller payroll this year. Um, but I mean, the real answer is like when the division, you don't have to worry about this. You get, yes. you know, more games for, for a buffer. Um, but you know, not, not everybody gets to do that. So it, it, again, it's another one of these tough conversations where it's like, well, you can't just say, we'll win 110 games and you'll be fine. Cause like, that's kind of unreasonable too, but like, that is the solution to this problem. Yeah. And I would rather try that than try, try this a third time and just, yeah, winning 110 games. And Hey, if you lose in the ALDS, but you won 110 games, uh, I don't know. That feels better than a third run, uh, at this. I'm curious, this is not a Jay specific question, but, um, Jerry DePoto speaking uh, for the Mariners the other day, um, you know, at their kind of end of season, you know, he used this quote that was going around that, Hey, the goal is to be, you know, a 54% win team over, over a 10 year span. And it, you know, whether willfully or, or unintentionally, or it was his fault for communicating. That's obviously not great messaging. I think his point was more that like, you have to build a sustainably good floor and then hope to get a little lucky on top of that. Um, but when you look at that quote and that line of thinking, but then you look at, Hey, say the Toronto blue Jays in a division where Tampa is Tampa and the Yankees and Boston are, if not spending already, they're going to be spending again soon. Um, the Jays don't really have that fortune. So where, what do you make of kind of how they enter this off season? Yeah. And I would also say that like Jerry is espousing the thinking of many of these smaller market value based teams, which would be Tampa and you know Milwaukee who has, you know, former Tampa guys, GM, I would say Cleveland and the former Cleveland guys, which obviously Toronto falls into that despite not having a low payroll. Like that line of thinking has sort of been spread around baseball because the teams that think that way and operate that way going all the way back to, you know, Oakland and the Moneyball days, that's been what, what owners want because they like that, like Heim Bloom in Boston, that was his approach. That wasn't the market in the, like the timing to have that approach, but like, that was the approach. Um, the, it bothers me because uh, I'm obviously somewhere between like a, uh, like a true fan and someone who works in a front office. Cause I've, I've like kind of done both of those hats. I like to think I understand both of them. What a fan wants is they want the laundry to win championships. Yes. And they want to like, feel like they're going for it. It's almost like they're watching a movie. Like I want like all the, everyone to show up for the battle at the end and then we win. And you know, we have to lose every now and then like, so it, so it's, you know, it doesn't seem like we win every single time uh, for, you know, nar- narrative uh, structure and whatnot. But like, I want to be going for it. And like we can have the, the bad part because the, the, every movie needs a bad part. Uh, and then in the front office, they're thinking like a big sustainable business that could be run by someone else or by a computer or, you know, whatever. And so the idea would be, oh, well, we need to be uh, competitive uh, down, down the stretch uh, in the playoff race until late every year for the next 10 years. And any given year, we're not going all in that year. We're going all in for the next three to five years, just not going all in at all. And that's how they all think of it. And that's what Jerry was basically sort of, you know, said the unspoken part, which is like, oh, this is a thing where like I'm trying to put up uh, numbers in one way and you guys want numbers in another way. And they just sort of crashed into each other and everyone kind of realized oh, we're not rooting for the thing that he's trying to do. Like he's trying to have like a, you know, win like over the last 10 years, this, this you know, org was the most efficient. Like that's the award he's trying to win. And the fans want him to win the World Series. And that is I would say at least half, if not two thirds of the teams in baseball think of their baseball team that way, which is like frustrating from my perspective, being able to see both camps of people and be like, how are you two not talking to each other more often about how there's a mismatch here? 
Well, there's also, you know, a part of a general manager's job, like it or not, is the PR aspect of it. And that's just, you know, even if you believe that, it's probably not good optics to just say it uh, and tell your fans they should actually be thankful or, or whatever the, the phrasing was. Um, and look, Kylie, you've been on both sides of this, right? Like you have been in the Yankees organization and the Braves organization. You've also been in the Pirates and Orioles organization. So, um, you know, you've kind of run the gamut of budget teams and, you know, analytic savvy level. Um, I'm curious. So this this kind of takes us back to the to the Jose Brios question, but I, I'm asking it in a more macro level because there was a lot of talk in Toronto after that decision, after that game about the analytics of it all. Um, in your experience, having been on the front office side is the biggest challenge like i'd imagine there's some homogeneity in the actual numbers and science that the the good analytics teams are using at this point how much like have we moved to where the differentiating point and where you're really leveraging that stuff is in how it's communicated down the line yes uh, i'm actually working on an article for beginning of the next season around this idea um, that statistics, analytics, whatever you want to call them, have become commoditized, which essentially means every team has access to all the things they need. It's not about getting the numbers or having the employees that can go through the numbers. It's about uh, how well you go through them, how deep you go, and then most importantly, as you're saying, how you communicate them. Because there's a bunch of teams where like, they have a bunch of really good ideas. Sometimes they tell them to me because they're not getting to the clubhouse. And it annoys them. And so they tell me, so like basically they can get credit behind the scenes for having good ideas, but the manager won't listen to them, which is like probably a little bit the manager's fault, but mostly their fault. Cause there's a bunch of other teams that have managers just like that guy who do listen to them. And so the presentation of it and like the stakes around it and, you know, all, all those, you know, sort of setting of how this information is getting uh, given to the people in charge of what's happening on the field. Uh, that's the key to what's going on. And now I just had like a presentation with an, an AI stats company and they're basically like, yeah, this is like sort of like a front office in a box, like for $100,000 a year, which is essentially like salary and benefits for one of your people, not even your most important analytics person. You can have all your stuff set up in such a way that like a GM that's never used SQL or databases before can ask all the same questions your R&D people can. So like the idea that like, oh, they're too into analytics. So they're, you know what, it's like, that's total nonsense. Like I would say something that's happening with the Yankees right now is they have uh, come to a point of view that everybody has to have top of the scale exit velos. And every pitcher has to have top of the scale stuff. And as you can imagine, what that means is you get a bunch of like older out of shape guys with giant contracts that aren't hitting home runs like Giancarlo Stanton. And you get a bunch of guys that don't stay healthy and can't throw strikes like Carlos Rodon. Like that is the ultimate extreme of it. But like, if you go through and say like, what's the most important thing happening on the field, according to Statcast, they would say raw power as measured by exit velo and stuff as measured by this stuff plus metric. And so they decided to go after that stuff, which sounds like you told an eight year old, like, look at all these numbers and pick a team. And they just ignored everything else. And that's like the, that's like the reckoning they're going through right now is having to fine tune that opinion a little bit more. And every team has a version of that, like the little corner of the metrics that they dive into the most like Seattle's thing is we think we have to pay a market value for exit below. So instead of that, they really tried to sign Marcus Simeon a couple off seasons ago because they think the guys that basically hit the ball into a barrel area, like, you know, double home run that area but don't have huge exit velo, but have like the skill to lift the ball and hit for power without huge uh, power, that those guys are the undervalued ones that they want to invest in. And so that was their little like point of view. And they were chasing those guys for a while. And, you know, guys like Ty France or JP Crawford now fit into that. And they've obviously like made some hay there. Um, but the idea of analytics is basically like, what area do you want to emphasize? The idea that like they're doing it too much is like completely reductive to the point of being useless. Yeah. And you got to, you know, how you communicate and implement it both at the front office level and then down to the kind of granular decision 
level. And, and yeah, you know, as I said off the top of the show today, also what's happening in the game is data too. And that should be, uh, you know, affecting things uh, a little bit as well. Kylie McDaniel, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Uh, enjoy the rest of these playoffs that we'll be, uh, we'll be watching as we look at like your free agent rankings and things like that, instead of actually watching the blue Jays. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm going to all the Braves playoff home games, so I might be tied up here for a while. We'll see. <laughs> all right, man. Uh, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, author of Future Value and the Power Alley Substack, uh, member of a, a handful of front offices over the years. So helpful perspective there. Thanks to Kylie for coming on, giving us kind of – so we've now had the the player side with, with John Axford and, and what yesterday and this run has felt like there. We talked to Kylie on the front office side. Let's talk to Matt Bushman now, former Major League pitcher, uh, former Blue Jays bullpen coach as well. Matt, good morning, man. Thanks for doing this. How you doing? Yeah, absolutely. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing it. Um, so before we get into last night's decision, I want to take it back to 2020. You were part of a Blue Jays pitching uh, coaching staff that made a similar play when Matt Shoemaker came out of a, a game he was dealing in in the 2020 wild card against Tampa Bay. Maybe a little bit more of a straightforward decision uh, in that one, given the data we had on Matt Shoemaker at the time. But what do you remember about that experience and what those discussions were like? Um, very similar kind of game situation to what the Blue Jays saw yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the differences back then was, you know, I, I want, I, I do believe Matt was coming off of uh, an injury a little bit too. Like he had built back up, but he, he had felt good. Like there'd been, and you know, there was so many unknowns with uh, the COVID season and, and then add in the fact that, yeah, there was a lot of examples of, of him, you know, I, I hadn't seen something like that where he would be incredible you know, one to two times through an order, but it would, it would change so fast, you know, and there was a lot of examples of that throughout the year. So even gut feeling, you didn't feel, you didn't feel safe. And so I think going into that game, it was trying to maximize, you know, like what we could out of him and, and knowing the past, like trying to make it the best decision to win the game. So that, this was obviously a slightly different coaching staff at this at that point in time but you were a member of coaching staff since then um in your experience what is the what is the process like when you know the group is sitting down you know i imagine john schneider pete walker a handful of other people sitting down and coming up with the game plan and kind of game scripting what a do or die must win game looks like like what kind of things are being discussed what kind of leverage points uh, are being looked at ahead of the game actually starting yeah, I mean it's it's a good question, and and I think you know I think from the outside it's easy to to maybe think that like there's I know you hear people say, you know the computer spit it out or you know this is a decision made by a singular person, but it really is, man. It, what it is is like we have they have a lot of information, and a lot of it's really good information, and it's several people in a room trying to come up with different scenarios, you know, and there's a lot of information that you know even me at home that doesn't, that probably knows more than most doesn't, I don't have that. You know, there's some, so many little things we don't have that everyone in the room does. And so, you know, essentially what you're trying to do is going, you're trying to pick out what are the highest leverage situations that are come up in this game. And, you know, for, for everyone at home, it's like, that's usually when you're facing the best hitters in a lineup and, you know, depending on the game state. So what's the score, and if it, if anybody's on base, how many outs there are, like when that spot in the lineup, Royce Lewis comes up, it's like, what's going on in that moment. And that's a high leverage point. Like you can win or lose the game essentially in the fifth inning. Um, 
And if the, if their best hitters up and some guys are on base, like that could be the difference on, you know, you may want to put your best reliever in, in that moment, because that may be the only chance for them to score and you need to put a stop to it. So that's how they're looking at it. Um, you know, and, and to be, to be fair to those guys, like there's probably a, a lot of information they're looking at and they're going, look, like, it's never a right or wrong. This is a percentage play. You know, you have to think of it more like I'm at blackjack. I'm not going to hit on this hand. And I think the dealer's going to bust. Well, if the dealer, just because it's a high percentage chance the dealer busts, like, you know, if he doesn't, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means like you were, your hunch was that it was more likely that he wasn't. So, um, I don't know. So that's the way to look at it. I think it, and it's really hard to, man, people are invested. Fans are invested. It's, it's an emotional thing. That's the great thing about sports, but I think that's why they're in the room before the game. They're trying to take that emotion out of really hard decisions and trying to make, you know, good, you know, informed decisions without the emotion and the heat of the moment. Yeah, the for, the unfortunate thing here is that in blackjack you can just stay at the table and play another hand. I mean, <laughs> assuming you you haven't busted out already, yeah. uh, these are this is the right. thing with baseball is the sample size is uh, is always going to be one. So that's what they do. You know, that's what they're looking at pregame. They're looking for these potential leverage points. Um, how much do you think it's getting discussed that hey, if we go to let's say Yusei Kikuchi in the fourth as they did for that lefty lefty part of the order, you know, the fact that that early in the game, you can turn an Alex Kirilov into a Donovan Solano hitting from the right side the rest of the way. Um, you know, that's a part of that. And then also, you know, how it sets up your bullpen the rest of the way. Like, I guess just just beyond, hey, what is Barrios's chance of getting out of X situation? What other kind of factors are, are you guys kicking around as you kind of lay out possible scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I think the other factors you're, you're kicking around is like, so really in that moment, you're asking yourself, like, what's a better, like, what's a harder matchup for Kepler? And they're looking at him going, well, on the surface, the harder matchup for Kepler is him facing Kikuchi. And and uh, having Kikuchi face the pinch hitter, which I'm sure they're aware that they would probably pinch hit Solano, that's a better matchup in their mind than Jose Barrios facing another lefty in Kirloff. So, I mean, those things are going in. You're you're looking at Kikuchi and going, maybe he can give us length. Like if he can give us some outs at the bottom of the lineup at that point, he's been a good starter all year. Now you're handing over the next time you come to the top of the lineup, you're going to hand that over to one of the best bullpens in baseball. And so I think on that, that game plan on paper looks good, you know? And, and I think the hardest thing about all this that, you know, it's, it's part of the job, but you know, to be fair to, to, to that staff, is, you know, everyone right now is assuming that if you leave Barrios in, he's going to get out of that. And you can't do that. But yeah, like that's part of it. You know, everyone's just assuming that the the alternative to bringing Kikuchi in is that, you know, he would have given up zero runs and something else would have happened in the game. And so it's hard, man. That's why being in that seat and being the manager in that, in that moment is, you know, it's, uh, it's not easy. For sure. Yeah, the reality is with the game would probably still be going tied zero zero right now. Is uh, <laughs> is the way that one may have played out because they may never have uh, have scored a run. Um, so I, I guess look, uh, obviously you are setting these game plans in place. You are looking at a wealth of you know season data and pitcher versus hitter data, and you're you're looking at a lot of things. And then you get into the game, and Jose Brios is dealing the way he is. He he has five strikeouts mm-hmm. over three innings. He's generating some pretty bad swings. He's locating mostly well in, in my estimation. 
explanation, the Royce Lewis walk, you know, I'd call that a good walk. You, you worked eight pitches, you made him expand a little bit, but Hey, you're not going to give him anything to drive again. Um, how much, you know, I'm sure there are instances where Jose Brios has looked really good for the first three innings and then faced the lefty a second time through the order and it's gone off the rails. But how much does what you guys are seeing, you know, pitch to pitch from a guy affect those decisions? I, I guess just how how flexible is the game script based on how good a pitcher looks? Yeah, no, that's that's a fair question. And I think that's one thing. I think that's maybe a misnomer is that, you know, I, to, to try to clear that up, I've been in the room where we've talked about like the subjective, like the gut feeling, how people describe it is like, use your eyeballs. And then, you know, we've discussed like, all right, what are the subjective things that we can look at? What's the gut feeling that overrides the game plan? And we talk about that. We did talk about that when I was there. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive. They talked about that then where they brought up, like, is there a scenario where we let him push through this part of the order? You know, what does that look like? And I'm sure they made, you know, they made those decisions and they had that conversation and, you know, for whatever information was there, like I'm, I'm assuming they, they even probably threw out there, like, what if he is dealing, you know, what if this, this, and that, and whatever they had in front of them, they felt, they felt that, that, that outweighed, you know, him looking like he did. And, you know, to an extent, I, I think it, it can also be said, like, man, there's something that's sticking to a decision. That's hard to do. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to, you know, let that play out. And if it doesn't work out, like, look, we're not sitting here talking about, you know, the decision that was made by the coaching staff and, and the manager Schneider, like we're, we're talking about, Oh, they just didn't get it done. And that's, that's the easy thing to do. Right. But there's something to be said about, you know, I, I think the decision they make and the conversations they had before the game are much more, um, involved than maybe people are aware of. And, and to be honest, man, like the fact that that happened and that's a decision we can pick apart, like we're talking about this at length today. I mean, that's just part of sports radio also, but they lost the game yeah, two to yeah. nothing. Like even like, it's not like that backfired dramatically. They, they, the way the bullpen and the, Barrios and Kikuchi were managed like they gave up two runs they they should have been able to you know they should have been in the game they, they did their uh their job on that side of it um man I I know you're you were a pitcher and you were a bullpen coach but when a team you know only puts up one run over two games does that have an impact on your strategy do you, do you tighten up a little bit in in how mm -hmm. you're making some of these decisions because the offense is just not something you can maybe rely on coming around yeah, a hundred. I mean, that's that 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 is for sure baked into that decision and the conversations they're having before the game. I mean, at some level, given what they what they the team they are get up to that point, like there is a feeling of like, hey, we don't have a lot of margin for error. You know, maybe maybe the offense of twenty twenty two, you're willing to you're willing to push someone a little bit further, a starter, because it's like, all right this offense has shown the ability to score runs in bunches. And, but you, you, for whatever reason, this was the offense this year. You had Sonny Gray on the mound, who's been an incredible pitcher all year. So yeah, like, I think, I think that has to be looked at it too. And, and to your point, I mean, no one's gonna, it's like, no one's gonna remember like at the end of the day, yeah, like there weren't any runs scored, but also, you know, Kikuchi gets a ground ball that man, if that's like two feet, like a little bit closer to Biggio, we're turning double play because Royce can't run. And like there's two outs and the bases are clear and it looks like a genius thing. And, you know, and I think that the hardest thing about that inning was the walk um, to the pinch hitter Solano, but you know, he did, he did get the ground ball um, to that next hitter and, and 
crappy thing about baseball is luck is involved in a lot of it. And that was some bad luck on where exactly that ground ball went. Yeah, that's a tough one. And it's one that, you know, that could maybe, it can maybe keep you warm when you win 89 games over 162. You can look past the the odd loss on that or whatever, but uh, tougher in a, in a two game spot. And I mean, yeah. a, a huge part of this too is, I and mean, this is not unique to the Jays, uh, to the Jays twin series, but uh, look around at these wild card series. And like, it's a, it's a bit of a different game in a two game series or a five game series or seven game series than it is over uh over 162 it's uh it's just a little bit of a different game in the playoffs right yeah it is and you know like yeah who would have thought the rays would only score what they only score like one run yeah you know, and they only scored one last year too yeah and and at home you know so there there's things that don't like there's things that make sense over 162 games and the decisions you make because it, it's such a long season and then you know, as much as you try to use those same decision-making tools in the playoffs, like the playoffs are just, they're a different animal, man. And, and there's so many different variables because it's not just another game in the long slog of the season. It's, you know, it's the loudest that the twin stadiums probably been all year. So that has something to do with it. Like they're playing with this kind of, you know, momentum and energy that they, you know, compare that to maybe the Rays who, yeah, like it's well-documented the, the, the fans and how many fans they had at both these games, but um, it is crazy. The playoffs are just, that's why they're awesome. It's a different animal. Yeah. That's why they're awesome. And that's why they are, uh, they are at times painful. Matt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, man, I guess, what is this like this year been like for you? I know it's your first year, like out of baseball in a, in an official capacity, uh, in a little while. H- how has that been? And you know, what's that done to kind of your fandom or how you watch the game day to day? Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been really, I, I think I, I, I was in baseball and basically going to sp- spring training and just doing baseball things for 16 straight years. So I think a lot of it is like, Oh my God, this is what uh, life is like. Um, not having that same schedule um, where it's just every single day back to back to back, but it's been great. I mean, it's been a really good time being around uh, my kids and being at home and I've really appreciated it. And, you know, it is, it is, it has been good perspective for me to just watch games without all the information, you know, just to watch it as a fan and, um, but also knowing the things that I know and, and seeing how it can be viewed a certain way from the outside um, and understanding that, you know, it's almost understanding the fans perspective. Um, it's been cool. Um, but it's also been nice to just kind of get some time, some downtime and just watch some baseball in a way that's not always like it's the job. Yeah. And I look, I can appreciate that. I would rather be covering Toronto Blue Jays playoff games. But if I if I'm being honest with you, I'm going to enjoy a lot of division series uh, baseball this weekend and not have to be having the notebook out and getting ready for uh, for a show. I'm glad you're you're enjoying the season, man. Glad you're enjoying uh, getting to be a a dad on a more full time basis. I, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Matt Bushman, former Major League Baseball pitcher, former Blue Jays bullpen coach. Um I mean, I think we we got a couple of good perspectives here, right? We talked to John Axford about what it would be like being in that room or that dugout or being on that mound through some of those decisions. We got the front office side for, from Kylie McDaniel. We got the coaching staff side and a little bit about what those processes look like from Matt Bushman. And again, I've I've tried to sprinkle it in because I know there will be tweets when I when the show's done and I look and there will be someone or a handful of people being like, you keep talking about the pitching decision and they scored zero runs. You're right. They scored zero runs, um, but that has been, I don't know, we do what, two hours a day, however many weeks since the end of May when I came over after the end of Leafs and Raptors season last year. And uh, most of those conversations have been about, you know, leading to this. Is is the offense going to figure it out? 
are these flaws that we're seeing, you know, day to day, week to week, and then month to month, are, are they going to be figured out by the postseason? And they weren't. This team, you know, we we can quibble with some of the decisions on the pitching side. And we've done that, and it's a really fun part of the job. I, I, my favorite part of doing baseball radio is getting to pick at managerial decisions, good or bad, and, and kind of put yourself in the shoes of what would you do. Um, but, yeah, at the end of the day, there are a bunch of hitters on this team who get paid pretty good money who put up one run over two games against the Minnesota Twins. And, uh, you know, there is going to be some roster stability with this team because the core pieces, you know, you look at the young guys, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Alejandro Kirk, uh, Danny Jansen went healthy, Kevin Biggio, all those guys are coming back. George Springer is still part of this roster. Um, and, and the position player free agents that you have, it's a big list in Whit Merrifield, Matt Chapman, Kevin Kiermeyer, and Brandon Belt. But it's a group of guys who you only expected to have for a short term initially, and they're your more veteran pieces. Um, some of those guys might be back. But you know how to level set for those guys. You know what the expectations are uh, for some of the holdover younger position players or in the case of George Springer, someone who just has a long contract. Uh, it's going to be a long offseason, I think, sitting with that stuff and trying to figure out, you know, obviously this is on the the front office to add a little bit more offense to this group. It's on the, the coaching staff and whether it's the hitting coach, the hitting strategist, whoever, there's got to be a, a better, you know, collective come spring training as well. There are going to be a lot of guys who look at uh, the performances they had and the fact that the Blue Chase put up one run over two games in the, uh, in the biggest games of their season. It's a tough one. And uh, I mean, look, the, the pitching staff was really, really good this year. It's uh, it's probably the hardest part of this is that I, I can't imagine you're going to get a better pitching season from this, we we talked a bunch about how historic this pitching staff was in terms of having four guys that reliable, give you that many innings, strike out that many batters, having a sub four ERA, uh, not get injured. I don't know that you can bank on that again, even though all those guys are, are coming back contract wise with the exception of Hyunjin Ryu. So um, it's going to leave you with a, a tough taste for the offseason. It's going to be fascinating to see how that all goes. So let's take a break and let's talk to John Morosi about, uh, hey, at the national level, at the newsbreaker level, at the transactional level. What does baseball make of the Toronto Blue Jays getting swept for a second year in a row and a third time in four? John Morosi joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Blue Jays lose another year of the window, at least for uh, for this core. Uh, Bob Shedd and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. get a year older. They get a year closer to free agency, a year closer to some big, big decisions to be made. Then, in the interim, the Toronto Blue Jays have some big, big decisions to make about how to be more competitive uh, and especially more competitive in the postseason in the year 2024. John Morosi of MLB Network joins us now to help us figure out what that looks like. John, your uh, your initial reaction to the Toronto Blue Jays once again getting swept in the wild card round. Blake, uh, good morning. Uh, condolences to Jays fans on a, on a tough day. It is, uh, is one of those years where there were great expectations and obviously fell short. At the end of the day, I look at this and say, this is a team that's tried to to have somewhat different versions of the roster uh, at this time of year and, and have success with it. But 
it does seem to me that a, a bit of a more profound and definitive course correction is going to be required, whether it's with the roster, the coaching staff, uh, any other part of the operation. It just does not seem as though this particular group of Jays with this format is working at the time of year when it matters most. It's uh, And that's especially true offensively. We, we can break down, you know, the pitching decisions and the changes and things like that, but they gave up five runs over two games. You, you should consider yourself to be in a good position to, to win those games. When we look at what happened with the Blue Jays offense this year, John, uh, they fell to 16th in home runs, 14th in total runs scored. Yeah, there's some, you know, hey, batted ball misfortune or, or this was your WRC plus, but your, your struggles in runners and scoring position. We were talking as far back as the deadline that this team needed additional offensive oomph and they could use another batter to uh, what do you think the offseason ahead looks like for them on that side of the ball after last year they kind of went the other direction and were prioritizing run prevention right I think in many ways the run prevention of the Jays is is the envy of Major League Baseball they've got one of the very best pitching staffs in the game and for that reason they're they're in a really good spot there in terms of being competitive and relevant for years to come. But the issue, as we saw in this series against the Twins, how do you perform against good pitching? And in two games, they had one extra base hit. One. That's it. That, that's, that's the story. I know there's plenty of dissecting of the, uh, of the John Schneider decision on, on Berrios, and I get it, it's fair, but they weren't going to win that series with one extra base hit in two games. That's just, you can't win that way. And that's where they were. And, and even then, there were some fundamental issues. The the getting picked off at second base can't happen. So I, I think that you've, you've got to be a, a more diverse lineup. I, I think you need to have better balance. And you have to look at it as well and say big picture that one year later, the, the Moreno trade was a, was a mistake. And I, I, at the time, I liked it for both, both teams. But clearly, the Jays did not know everything that, that they had in, in Moreno. That, that, to me, is one of the biggest things when you look at teams that are maybe falling short of expectations. Do you know your own talent well? Can you get the most out of your own internal talent? And are you properly evaluating your own players? And in that case, they didn't, period, based on the way things have gone this year. And I think that's, that's something that Jays have to live with and confront and reckon with and realize and learn from because that – looks like it was a mistake, and, and now that's, that's going to be a, a big issue for them to deal with. I, I, again, I think that they need to get some younger players, some more athletic players, some guys that hit consistently for more damage. They need to find guys like Gabriel Moreno. They need <laughs> to find guys that are, that are left-handed. And, and again, like the, the dream scenario is, is Cody Bellinger, and, and, and he's probably the guy that will be on everybody's uh, list to, to play uh, first base or, or potentially in the outfield. You could also talk about a trade with the Mets for Pete Alonso, that's another option. But there's, there's just a lack of, of different ways to score with this lineup. And, and, if, and if Vlad wasn't going to hit a home run, and if and obviously Chapman, you know, there was uh, the bases loaded near bases clearing hit that, that could have dropped if it was a few inches away. And, and I get it. There's, there are small, you know, small margins in a playoff game. But, 
But again, one extra base hit in two days tells me that they've got to have a different approach, probably some different personnel, and and very likely some some changes in how they prepare for for, for ball games. Yeah, I, I was curious as to your your take on you know whether the people making these decisions might be feeling the heat right now as well, whether that's the front office or the coaching staff level. Um, but it, we'll, we'll I'll pivot to that if, if we have a little bit of time here. But you mentioned Matt Chapman and kind of the near miss on on his hit there with the the bases loaded and then he grounds out. That's kind of been the story of his season where right there with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in terms of, well, this is your batted ball results. These are, this is what you're doing to the ball when you hit it, but these are your actual results. Um, He has had a really tough go of it since the start of May in terms of actual production. I know it's a weak free agent class, but do you think Matt Chapman's, you know, maybe seen his, his free agent number come down a little bit here as the season's gone on? I do. I also think that perhaps, He'll he'll look for a and again we'll have to see it's it's early on in the process I mean he's still a uh, he, he just turned thirty this year does he potentially look for a for a shorter term deal and then go back out and reestablish yourself or to your point do you do you then say well you want to seize the opportunity that there's not a whole lot of uh, of talented position players available on the open market I, I really think it's going to be the latter uh, he he was still. And I know that, to your point, it has the production has not been there since early in the year, really. Uh, he did still have a 17-homer year. He is still a high-end defender. I mean, all, all those things are true. He was a barely better-than-league-average uh, offensive player, so OPS plus of 108. So he was better than average, again, since May and June, probably not, not as much. So I, he's probably still going to look for one of those uh, multi-year deals that, that – sort of affirms his place as one of the top defensive third basemen in the game. But I, I do think that it's not nearly what we thought it was going to be at the end of April in terms of what where he was going on the open market. So it, it's tough. He's, he's been, I think, a, he's been a great Blue Jay uh, off the field. I think someone that really embraced playing in Toronto and representing the, the Blue Jays in Canada. And I think that's, that's really important, I think, for the organization to find people who are enthusiastic about about wanting to play for the city and for the country and he he did those things i believe but i think at the end of the day the production wasn't there especially not in the big moments and where he was batting in the lineup i think told you a lot about where uh, where he was at production wise since the end of april so i i tend to think that there's a, a better chance than not that he won't return that he'll move on somewhere else but uh the the free agent market has a way of of having a life of its own. And uh, we did not think at various points last winter that Carlos Correa was going to be a member of the Twins. And, and yet uh, it was his third, third try at a contract last year. He signs with them and ends up making two game-changing defensive plays in the course of the series. So uh, the, the free agent uh, story, Blake, is just about to get underway. And it, it's, it's one of my favorite things to cover, but it very rarely follows according to script. Yeah, the, I mean, Carlos Correa's series he had here. Obviously, Royce Lewis with, with the big game one moment as well getting those two guys back right at the finish line huge for the twins uh, one more for you on a, on pending uh, blue jays free agency here john there's going to be a lot of stability in the pitching staff in, in terms of you know hey four starters are still under contract the bullpen's mostly under contract with the exception of jordan hicks uh, what do you make of the potential market for hyunjin ryu who was able to return from tommy john this year have a handful of, of solid starts before two maybe rough ones to finish i know he's a boris client so he probably doesn't come cheap but um what do you expect uh, things to look like for hyunjin ryu it's interesting because he doesn't doesn't miss a ton of bats, Blake, and that's mm-hmm. one thing that when when you look at a pitcher who's just finished his age thirty six season and does not miss a ton of bats, 
but is still someone that can give you quality. Does he get two years for thirty million dollars total? Is it a little bit a little bit higher than that? Uh, you know, it's it's sometimes difficult to make the exact estimate and be be correct because there are just so many variables there. But that that to me feels about right. I mean, the, the, to me, the mitigating factors are he hasn't thrown a ton of innings, he doesn't miss a lot of bats, and he's 36, and he's going to pitch next year at 37. That's Those those kinds of things tend to say it's going to be a shorter-term deal than a longer-term one. Um, I, I do think there are probably going to be teams that that will pay more for him than the Jays will. The Jays, they have to allocate their resources towards the the lineup now you can't take your pitching for granted but my point is Ryu with what he does is going to mean a lot more to a team like let's just say the Mets the Yankees the Cardinals he would mean a lot more to, to those kinds of teams than he would to the Jays because the Jays they like their pitching, and they feel pretty good about what they've got internally. So, uh, interesting question. I, I think he's probably pitching somewhere else in 2024, probably on a, on a two-year deal somewhere around the AAV of 15 or $16 million, but uh, a very intriguing guy. You need, you need people who can give you quality starts, and he can still do that quite often. Uh, John, quickly before I let you go here, uh, for the last time on Jays Talk Plus this season, we've got, hey, it's disappointing the Jays aren't in them. We've got some pretty interesting uh, divisional series matchups. Is Phillies, uh, Phillies against the Braves kind of top of your top of your viewing list this weekend? Oh, it is. I think that's going to be an amazing series. The, the Phillies know how to play in October, and, and as, as dominant as the Braves have looked this season, that, that series is a coin flip for me. Now, the one thing is that the Phillies won't have – Wheeler or Nola to pitch game one, but I still like that team a ton. I think that's they'll probably start Taiwan Walker in game one. I would imagine they're a they're a dangerous October team. Look at Trey Turner. Uh, look at the way they're playing. The at bats, uh, the, the big moments. Bryson Stott. And they're just they're, they're they're a really good team. So I'm going to go. That's my favorite series that I'll see this weekend. But I'm also really intrigued to see how the Diamondbacks look against the Dodgers. You know, they're a team that, that I mentioned Moreno a little bit earlier. It's it's a younger team. Uh, the Dodgers have I think overachieved in a lot of ways despite having Mookie and, and Freddie. So uh, I would say advantage so goes to the Dodgers, but. The, the Diamondbacks went in there and, and beat a favored Brewers team two straight. So and they they had to come back twice to do it. So they they do not seem to be scared by the big moment, and they're going to be a very very tough test, I believe, for the Dodgers. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, John Morosi of MLB Network. Uh, enjoy the rest of the postseason. That won't involve us chatting, but uh, no less fun game to game. Well, stay in touch, Blake. I always enjoy our conversations, I, and I, I know that when I need to get my my understanding of the Raptors and, and, and if, if and when the Pistons are ever coming back to the playoffs, I'm going to be listening to you, my friend. Uh, not too far off. Kate Cunningham's awesome. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, John Morosi. <laughs> Very um, good. I appreciate it, Blake. Thanks so much. John Morosi of MLB Network. Uh, thanks to John for coming on today and all season. Thanks to Matt Bushman. Thanks to Kylie McDaniel. Thanks to John Axford. Thanks to Caitlin McGrath. And thanks to you. This is uh, this is it for Jays Talk Plus this year. It is uh, there is no more Toronto Blue Jays baseball to talk about because for the third time in four years, and the second time in two years, and the second time in two years of me doing this show, nice quick twenty-seven hour or so uh, playoff series. So um, programming wise, you're still going to have Blair and Barker. Uh, they're in the five to seven slot today and tomorrow. I think that'll change uh, next week as they move to more of a, an MLB playoff 
focused show, but they're with you the rest of this week. JD Bunkus is coming up next uh, 12 to two. He'll have, I'm sure a lot. I watched the game with him yesterday. I know he's got some Jays takes uh, ready to go for you. Um, so a lot more Jays talk to come this week and this off season. Certainly uh, I might pop in with a podcast from time to time, but if you're looking for more of me, uh, October 16th, the Raptor show starts up with William Liu and Alex Wong, and I'll be a, a part of that show uh, beginning on the 16th, switching over to Raptors coverage. Um, so thank you to, uh, oh, Joel Embiid's going to play for Team USA in the Olympics. If you needed one more FIBA basketball update from me uh, for the season, um, yeah, look, maybe I'll pop in with the podcast time to time uh, to keep Jay's Talk Plus somewhat fresh through the offseason, but mostly this is uh, Raptors time for me now. So thank you for listening throughout the year. I was not the most fun of seasons. I several times called this team joyless uh, relative to, you know, expectations and the style of play and the energy we'd come to expect from this group. And, you know, it's not nice that it ended this way and ended so quickly and ended in such frustrating fashion, but at least the way in which they went out lined up with all the stuff we've been talking about this year. Uh, yeah, they, they went out very, very on brand for the 2023 Toronto Blue Jays. I want to give a special thanks to Lance Kennedy, who's been behind the glass for us all season, to Jennifer Rolnick as well, who helps on the uh, the TV side, to Jeff Azaparty, who is my producer for a good chunk of the year, and to Nick Blackmore, who's been uh, my producer when Jeff Azaparty isn't, including these last couple of weeks. Uh, those people do a lot of great work to help me uh, sound more organized and better than uh, than I actually am. They deserved a better finish to this Blue Jays season. You deserved a better finish to this Toronto Blue Jays season. Uh, yeah, we'll see how this offseason goes. We'll see who's making those decisions. We also know, by the way, found out today from Shai Davidi, Luis Rivera is retiring. So there's at least going to be a new third base coach. Uh, I think that will be the first of several changes, whether that's on the, the coaching staff or at a higher level of how some decisions are made and more importantly communicated down the chain because this is uh, once again a disappointing end and this was a season with much much higher expectations than yet another sweep in the wild card round jd bunkus has you next for more uh, thanks for a fun season